Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of Scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Welcome, precious brothers and sisters, uh, to another podcast episode. This is Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. And uh, as promised, one of the things we try to do uh, through these uh, podcast episodes uh, is to interview uh, precious brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, specifically those who in these days are not hiding in their caves, in their dens, because the Midianite oppression that's taken place by this cancel culture, but are rising up in Jesus' name to take a righteous and bold stand uh, for the Lord's kingdom, his glory, and his great salvation amongst men. Uh, if you had listened to uh, my last episode, I talked about the loss of manhood and how that has devastated uh, our nation, you know, our communities, the church, our families, and what we need to do to reclaim uh, biblical masculinity and how important that is for our future and hope as a people. Well, I'm here to report, I have the honor uh, to interview a man uh, who has not lost his manhood, um, but has stood strong for the Lord and what is right in these days. Uh, soon I'll be introducing him. His name is Mason Goodnight. That's a great name, by the way, Mason. Hallelujah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, here, here's a dear brother. Uh, that um, I've gotten to meet through the abolitionist movement. And I was actually shocked to find out that he worked with the sheriff's department. And uh, because I was uh, following his exploits uh, on Facebook and this guy, he's an evangelistic machine. I mean, he has just a tremendous drive uh, to save the lost and also, you know, working diligently to help end this Holocaust in the United States of America. So it has been, uh, honestly, a, a blessing uh, to get to know him, uh, to partner with him at times uh, in this battle. And just recently, uh, Mason uh, came across something uh, in his work. Uh, some undue, uh, ungodly pressure uh, came upon him as it pertains to his work and his livelihood. And we're going to talk about his story and uh, get to know Brother Mason. So, Brother Mason, I want to welcome you, bro, to uh, Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. Thanks for taking some time, buddy, to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Brother Mason, if you can, buddy, just um, 
in a few minutes, just uh, describe uh, for our audience a little bit about your background, you know, the family you were raised in, and most importantly, how you were converted uh, to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Excellent, definitely. Well, um, I was raised in a professing Christian home uh, from my youth. I remember going to church as a young man, five, six, seven years old. I, uh, like many American evangelical families, at some point, I think I was around six years old or so, I said some kind of sinner's prayer in Sunday school and uh, got baptized at seven years old um, and lived a, pretty much a, a typical American life. Uh, dad worked, made pretty decent money. Mom worked some, uh, just a... Uh, dad, mom, my sister and I, and, uh, we lived together up until my, we bounced around a bit <clears throat> until my parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade. Then I kind of went off and got wild. Um, junior high, high school, living in sin, nothing too crazy. Never got in any real legal trouble, avoided, uh, skated by some, but could have. And, uh, by the grace of God, just, uh, didn't die in some of the crazy, stupid things I did. Always believed I was a Christian, always believed I was saved, even though I had no fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, it wasn't until much later when I was at a Calvary Chapel up in uh, Oregon where I'd moved to and started working for the sheriff's office at that time, which is back in 96. Sometime probably in that year, 96 or 97, I, I don't even have an exact time because I didn't really think I got saved. Um, I thought that I went from being a carnal Christian to a spirit-filled on-fire Christian. So I didn't mark dates down or anything. I'm like, sign anything that, you know, said this is the day uh, I I turned to be on fire or anything like that. I just uh, repented of sin, turned out, threw out a bunch of garbage, got rid of a bunch of porn, got rid of a bunch of filth and music and garbage movies and things like that, and started to really want to serve God and get plugged in deeply in the church. And, uh, and I didn't realize until several several years later, um, actually, that what had happened back then was not a uh, becoming on fire, but rather I had actually been granted everlasting life. I'd actually been saved at that point. Um, I actually went from being a scoffer living in sin and just naming Christ in name only um, to being one who actually repented and trusted in Christ and his finished work on the cross. So I actually got saved. I'm going to say sometime around 21 or 22 would be my salvation. I believe that would be my testimony in short. Well, praise God, Mason. So, bro, what, what, um, I guess, sparked an interest in you when it came to like law enforcement or the sheriff's department? Was that just you, you looked on the vocation list and said, whoa, um, I, I think I might want to go into law enforcement. What was the process, brother, that had you sort of looking towards uh, the sheriff's department uh, for a possible career? It's kind of funny. Um I wouldn't say I was necessarily looking to be law enforcement per se. Um, I said I was a false convert and I was also a wannabe gangster into the gangster rap music and foul stuff and uh, did a lot of stupid things when I was a kid. But 
um, for some reason, a friend of mine up here in Oregon, when I came back to do my senior year in high school, I bounced back and forth California and Oregon most of my life until I got up here and hired. And uh, But a friend of mine, when I was around 17 in high school, he, uh, he asked me if I wanted to be a police explorer with him. So I joined the police explorers with the Rosewood Police Department and did that. I was part of the second class they were put through and uh, had fun with that. Just, you know, learning some stuff, hanging out with some of the police and realized, oh, this is kind of fun. And then went back to California, moved there again, spent some time in the North Bay area. And I just started doing security jobs, worked a little bit of security. I was homeless for a while, had some interesting runarounds, but running around with the wannabe gangsters and all the people I did just did some security. But uh, when uh, I was down there, uh, an opportunity came up for the sheriff's office, and my mom actually put the application in for me. I didn't even put it Ooh. in. She put it in, and then I and she told me there was date, so I came up, moved up, uh, moved up with her and my sister, and I put in for the job. I went to the interview process. I didn't make it in the first section of people they'd hired at that time. Um, so in that process, I actually opened a blockbuster video here. I was one of the first five people hired and did that. And also <clears throat> went and applied for a security job because I'd done security at a, uh, Indian casino down in Canyonville near us. And strangely enough, I got hired by the sheriff's office, went through the process, got hired, got started. My first paid day was January 29th of 96. My first day in the jail mm. was February 5th of 96. But shortly after getting hired by the jail, the, the casino called me and offered me a job there too in security. So I was always said so I was always thankful I got in the sheriff's office first because it was a much better job career, as it were. And uh, and it was. And it was interesting. You say to get into this as a career that really was a speech given to me by the sergeant that did my background check and hired me. Sergeant Simodi sat down with me and said, Mason, you know, here I am, this 21-year-old kid. And he says, This is uh this isn't a job. He said, this is a, this is a career. This is something you can build your life on. You know, you can do for your, mm. your whole life. And, uh, I took it to heart and I said, okay, serious. Um, and I still was not saved at this point when I first got hired, but I knew it was good money. thought I was rich. I mean, I went from getting, yeah. uh, making five something an hour at Blockbuster to making 1237 at the sheriff's office an hour. And I thought, my goodness, I'm a rich man now. I'm going to go down and buy a, buy a Trans Am. Uh, realized I couldn't, I couldn't even buy a, couldn't even buy a Sunfire, my insurance and all that race. But, uh, it was kind of funny, but I, I got in and, uh, started my career there. And like I said, I was started there and went all the way until just uh, April 4th of this month where I got fired. So 27 years and I think they said 58, 59 days or something like that. Wow. Wow. Well, what people probably don't know, they cannot see you brother, but you're, you're a mountain of a man. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord definitely put some beef on you, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, which would probably uh, attest to why people wanted you for security. I would definitely <laughs> would want you by my side, brother, for sure, uh, if it came to that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Brother Mason, if you don't know, he's 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 a large man, but he's a, he has a teddy bear heart. Um, <laughs> God gave you the, the full package, buddy. He made you large on the outside and very loving on the inside and that's a powerful combination for the kingdom buddy praise be to god so 
anyway, so you start this career uh, with the sheriff's yep. department, and it was specifically you were a prison guard, brother. Is that is that what it was? Well, uh, we as a jail deputy, I worked in the jail. Prisons usually, uh, you know, the differentiations between the two. Uh, uh, corrections deputy, I was a sworn law enforcement deputy working in the jail. Um, went through a uh, corrections academy. I had the powers of arrest, wore the same uniform as any deputy on the road. Whereas a prison guard would be someone who works for the state or even a federal or a contract prison. But then they get the people that after they're all sentenced and sentenced to more than a year. So I was in a county jail where had a much more transient population. They're coming through more often. You can never be sentenced to more than a, a year for a single charge. Some did more than a year waiting on big trials and going and getting multiple charges. But you would never see anybody past five years in a county jail, whereas a prison, you could be there for life. So a little different setup, but yes, I worked exclusively in the jail for those 27 years. When I got fired, I was the top seniority deputy in the jail, longest in the jail at the time. Um, so I was, I was there a long time. <laughs> well, brother, do you have any uh, testimonies? I guess he probably he saw a lot, experienced a lot, 27 oh, yeah. years in this. This is the same location, right? where yeah, you were planted yeah. and you bloomed there, yeah, right? The whole time. Oh, yeah, the whole time. Okay, so yeah, do you I mean, have it? There were... Yeah, Go I had ahead, a lot man. of um, had a lot of good uh, interactions there, both with deputies and uh, other staff and inmates over the years. It was made clear that I was a Christian. I mean, they knew that after I got saved about a year in or so, genuinely got converted. I mean, I was literally ready to jump ship for the first few months when I was there and I was bored as young guy in Roseburg, Oregon, which if anybody knows Roseburg, it's a rinky dink little town with not a whole lot going on. You know, still we've got about 20 odd thousand people to this day here. Um, I had friends in Portland. Um, I thought about just quitting and going up to Portland to hang out with them. Um, but I realized back then it was only my flesh. And the reason I stuck it out was because in my flesh, um, I realized that my parents and my family would think I was crazy to give up a career like this to go up and you know play around in Portland or something. But I was a dumb kid. But I stuck it out because of fear of a mockery of humanity. <laughs> and, mm. you know, it played out well. I got saved shortly after. And, you know, that changed my whole life. I wouldn't have left Roseburg for anything. And I've been firmly planted here now, found my bride, got married, have two beautiful daughters now, 14 and 16. And uh, I'm, I wouldn't want to leave this town now in the last few years being plugged into this church. It has been an incredible blessing. This church is the most supportive. I had two of my pastors that I'm with them on the elder board. Um, they're active in evangelism. They were there at my hearing. They've been outside the sheriff's office with me. Um, this is a church where everybody in the elder board desires the gospel to go forth, stands at the mills. It's just, it's one of those rare gems, uh, like you know of, like Pastor Matt Trella and some others I know, my friend Pastor Chuck O'Neill up north in Portland. There's very few, very few churches where you have the support and the the full-on uh, drive to see God's name proclaimed outside the four walls, stand for life and all that. So they've been a blessing the last two, three years I've been with them and on the board last year or so. And uh, 
over the years, both between church and work, despite the fact that uh, I was in jail and doing my job there and obviously couldn't go around making my prime focus preaching the gospel, I did have a lot of good conversations with inmates. And because my Christian witness was known between deputies and inmates, um, I saw I saw a lot of cross pollination as it were because I also preach regularly at the local rescue mission. So a lot of the same guys I'd see in jail, I'd see there. When I'd see guys come into the jail, someone would ask, "Hey, don't you preach in the mission?" Stuff like that. And if people came mm. and asked me, you know, they would start the conversation. Inmates would go, "Hey, good night. Can you pray for me?" Or, "Hey, what's a good Bible verse for today?" And you know, they'd start conversations. I would look for doors, opportunities to witness if I could, um, but uh, without trying to. Uh, neglect my duties, was doing my job, but I had a lot of good interactions, a lot of good conversations, um, like I said, with inmates and deputies alike, and uh, built good relationships there, I'd say. say Despite the fact that working in a jail is never fun, as well it really shouldn't be, (laughs) Um, I do... The only thing I miss of being out of the jail already, I just miss some of the people because most of the people I work with, I got along with great. And I don't think I had a person I didn't get along with in the whole jail. Um, so, yeah, I miss the people, just not the job. But, yeah, it was a good overall, paid the bills, supported my family, opened up opportunity for ministry. Uh, I I can't complain about the overall scenario. Lots of little things here and there, some bigger than others, but overall it was a very good overall experience up until these last 11 weeks or so. So brother, during the 27 years, um, did you have to go through any kind of like uh, specific training courses or programs uh, to sort of keep you updated you know, on the same page with the system. What, what was that like? Yeah, I, I will say, um, sadly, our agency is pretty bad at training. That As the state started to make things more mandated, uh, we finally got some training in later years. It became mandatory. But for a great many years, there really wasn't much mandated training. We got by the bare minimums. Our county spent it, but as little as they could on it. Um, especially in corrections and anybody who ever listens to this, who's worked in a jail for a County, the mass majority of probably recognize. I mean, the, the jail is generally the redhead stepchild of any County agency and hmm. to a degree, rightly so. I mean, nobody really, you go into an average town, most people couldn't even tell you where the jail is unless they're doing prison ministry or jail ministry. Um, and they don't want to know, you don't want to know about that, that part of society. And so they don't know. And when you do see jails or prisons, um, deputies or corrections officers or prison guards on TV or in movies, uh, 99% of the time, we're all a bunch of dirt bags sneaking in dope or abusing inmates and doing wicked things. There's never heroes in the corrections divisions. About the only person I think has ever been a good guy in a movie is probably Tom Hanks in the Green Mile. Other than that, we're all bad guys. So it's not something that's uh, glamorized, very high suicide rates, very high um, depression rates. It's not a good place to get into if you're you're seeking to be uh, a glory hound or get name recognition or anything. Um, but overall, a, a good job. And my job, like I said, I got some training, the very limited training in my agency. I got some training early on in years for several different things, mainly because early on, I was uh, more smiled on, I guess, and uh, I applied to be a defensive tactics instructor. And so early on in my career, by December of 97, I had been uh, went to a full on 
uh, defensive tactics instructor course put on by a guy named Howard Webb, who is a, who's pretty much an elite trainer, a guy who um, I still look up to today as far as DTs go. He was the uh, trainer for the 96 Olympics. He, he headed all security for the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. He put together a good counter assault. Uh, tactics course. I got to take his police course. They didn't even have a corrections course at the time. So I took his course in that. And then I went later, maybe a couple years later and took his course in cell extraction. Um, so I got to do a little update on my training over the years through defensive tactics. I had to do some follow-ups and refreshers. Plus I used to do some training at the police academy um, for uh, uh, defensive tactics, use of force, as well as I've done some training for the HCI, I developed and implemented training, even some worldview training um, at the sheriff's office even over the years. So uh, I've been able to further it to some degree, but, uh, and over the last probably eight, 10 years, there's been kind of a change in how they do things with the state. And so there's been a little more regular training, but it's just kind of, they do the very minimum they can to check the box so they can get the, get us, uh, keep us certified. Wow. So you're going along, obviously, in your vocation, your career, you're you're ministering, um, you're going through, I guess, you know, some training uh, to sort of, like I said, check the box, get you certified, keep you going kind of deal. While this is happening, can you explain to me, Brother Mason, what you're starting to see as far as uh, the, like social issues, mandates that yeah. are starting to be uh, employed when it comes to, let's say, like you, your situation. Here you are, a deputy yeah. sheriff uh, in the jail system. Um, walk us through, brother, that process as you start to become aware that uh, some of the social issues are starting to infiltrate, um, you know, the government and specifically like law enforcement. Uh, Can you can you walk us through a little bit with that to lead up to your courageous stand uh, against it? Sure. Um, You know, it's been a slippery slope. I tried to speak with our human resource director about a little bit. Um, in the past, he didn't really want to talk about it when this event started, but I could track back to early in my career just to give some context. I mean, very early on, obviously, probably in the late 90s still, I remember a gentleman coming into jail. He literally had, he was cross-dressing. It was kind of a funny moment even for some people because I was very professional in my handling with him. I can remember to this day because one of the other female deputies with me, she was she couldn't hold in her laughter when I said it as calm as I did. This gentleman came in wearing a black slip and everything and covered with perfume and had red lipstick all over himself. He literally wrote the TV for transvestite on his chest and had other things all over him. But he had two uh, water balloons for breasts. One of them was gone and uh, one, and one was still in the bra. And I remember going to pat him down and I said, uh, can you remove your left breast, please, sir? And uh, she about lost it, had to leave. And, uh, you know, of course, the guy, he was embarrassed and everything. And uh, the mentality was, you know, this guy's a pervert. And this is gross. And the sergeant on duty at the time, you know, we isolated him like we always did with folks that were in that way for their protection. 
Um, and uh, he tried to shower for like an hour, wash off perfume, never could, nail polish. He was embarrassed, as well he should be. Mm. And uh, But that's where it was. And back then, everybody knew this is bad. This is embarrassing. You should be embarrassed. He was embarrassed. Um, and he, my sergeant wanted to send him out in the slip and clothes he came in, in, but when he left, but a friend, he let a friend bring in some blue, blue jeans and a shirt t-shirt for him. So I'm saying the, so showing them back then, this was obviously behavior that was not smiled upon when you got caught in it. Even like this man was, he was embarrassed about it. Uh, it was definitely a no go. Then several years ago, probably a, it might go back to 2017 um but priya came into existence and priya is the key thing that ended up what ended my job priya stands for prison rape elimination act the prison rape elimination act was implemented in 2003 so it's been around 20 years as of this year and its idea obviously is in its name to try to eliminate prison rape and a lot of it is okay stuff. Nothing wrong with trying to eliminate prison rape. Of course, we're against that. And, of course, we've always had a societal system. And in our culture, we don't stand for that, obviously, um, in our jail or anywhere else I know of. But they wanted to, the feds wanted to get a hold of it and implement certain policies and procedures. And so early on, I want to say around probably 2017, we started to see something in our jail, I'm just guessing at the number where they implemented a new booking process, a new thing we asked during our medical process, medical questioning, where at the very end of the of the questioning, you would ask the two questions that would be, um, do you consider yourself to be um, homosexual or bisexual or a member of the LGBTI gender non-conforming community? Um, and so we had to start asking that question. And you know, this to this little podunk county, like I said, I would say nine times out of ten, the average inmate didn't even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't even know what that is. And we'd say, well, obviously you're not then. You know, don't worry about it. Um, I've probably seen a handful of transgender professing people in my jail in all my years. Um, but that was the – I was starting to be mentioned, the LGBTQ stuff, the uh, LGBTI, for those who don't know, I is intersex. Um, but that's so – they use that instead of Q, but – it's in that in that spectrum, and uh, that was a big thing going in, tying with Priya, but really nothing had changed in how we handled the those folks when they came in. Um, the standard procedure is they'd come in, whoever if they were identifying as whatever they wanted to identify as, but they were fully unphysically changed and you know if a woman came in and said she's a man but every bit of her was still a woman if she was willing to be housed with females and she didn't you know have any security concerns she would be housed with females because that's what she was we house them by their actual gender their sex as god designed them um, but if they chose to say, no, I'm transgender, I identify as a male or vice versa, I, I identify as a female, um, then we would isolate them. Just wasn't no, if I, nobody got put in with their, the biological gender, the they opposite. were not. Right. And so they were always isolated. Well, this procedure comes out and uh, it, it says that we're going to start doing that. Now I'm told this procedure literally came out in 2017. That's why I'm guessing this, these interview things probably started to happen around that time. But for the life of me, I do not remember seeing that. Apparently I signed off on it somewhere. 
And I've already owned up to that. I said, if I signed it and I didn't recognize this, I clicked the, it's all digital. I clicked the button, said I saw it, whatever. And I did that and I failed to read it somehow. I missed it. It skipped by me. Then I own that. That's my fault if that's indeed the case. But they edited it recently. And now what I got fired for is what is there today now in 2023. What was the change, Mason? What was the big change for you? Well, it started with what happened is early in this year, in January sometime, there was a, a training given to us. And we get digital training things all the time. And the, the typical procedures, when you're putting in a new procedure or policy, especially for jail inspections, which was coming up soon, before you implement a new policy or procedure, you need to be trained on how to carry it out. Makes sense. So in updating this uh, LGBTQ policy, we have this transgender policy that I eventually got fired on. They had to train us first, and so they had to give us this training. This training was called the LGBTQ community training. Now I'm told that it was just supposed to be awareness training. It wasn't, it was not supposed to be indoctrination training, it's just awareness training. But it was very much was indoctrination and grooming training for law enforcement. It was, I ended up watching it all, seeing it all through someone else's login because that's where my trouble started. As soon as I got that, I started, I ended up seeing almost an hour's worth of it before I got to the first quiz and the whole training was supposed to be an hour. But when I got to the first quiz, it asked questions. And the second question was, what is uh, gender identity? And they give you multiple choice questions. And for me to answer the question in itself would have made me want to defy God and lie. And I refused to because it said, what is gender identity? And their answer is, you know, your deeply held emotional, you know, convictions of what your gender is or whatever, something like that. And I mm -hmm. said, no, there's no answer. There's no answer that's right. There's no answer. Your gender is what God has assigned you from the womb. Um, so I couldn't answer it. And I said, I won't answer it. I won't give you the answer you want. So basically, I wrote a three-page letter to my lieutenant. He's new in the jail. He took over a few months prior. And I very deeply and fully explained my reasoning, that it was a, a sin against God, that Isaiah 520 makes clear that, you know, woe on those who call evil good and good evil. And I said, I would not do that. I would not bring that woe on me. And I pray that he'd repent and not let this woe continue on the sheriff's office and the jail made a strong biblical and moral and logical case. And that started me down the path of refusal and it built from there. And how much detail I want to get in that? I don't know, but that was the first step was that training I refused. So that that's when you, you crossed the line. That's when you were fully aware that this is not just, you know, a procedure thing or, you know, or making you aware of a situation. They're literally indoctrinating uh, government officials to basically affirm something that is so wicked and so destructive to the human race. And at that point, you said, no, sir, I, I cannot yep. go there. Um, exactly. So that's when you took your stand. Now, Mason, once that happened, uh, what, you know, what took place after you made that stand? Started once I made that stand, the process took about 10 weeks from my initial refusal to my termination. Um, 
it was interesting. Like I said, it was late January. In my first letter, I wrote to him I, the irony of the situation because I said there's two big dates coming up on February 5th. One is my 27-year anniversary with the sheriff's office, and the other is the due date for this LGBTQ community training that I refused to do. Um, mm. That's something I thought I'd never face. And that started me down the road of progressive discipline. And they, there was a lot of back and forth, them warning me, having me a sit-down meeting with my jail commander, the undersheriff, the head of the HR department in the whole county. Um, and people just trying to tell me, hey, they, you know, they told, every one of them told me too. Told me that nothing had changed in how we were going to do things. Told me clearly, both my lieutenant, the undersheriff, and the sheriff all told me, Mason, we are not going to house biological females with males. It's not going to happen. And so I said to them, why are you putting this policy forward? Why are you saying we will? And they didn't ever, never gave me a straight answer. They wouldn't give me an answer at all. You just clam up because they didn't want to admit that we're writing a policy that says we will. And, but, but what they're doing is, and this was the problem is one way or the other, I had to join them in their dishonesty and their lying because they Mm. said, they're either telling me we're not going to do this or telling me to my face we're not going to do this. But the policy says every single inmate will be um, individually evaluated and go through a transgender review board, their history, all this long, detailed list of what will be done to determine where they will be housed and the possibility per the procedures they could be housed in the in the area that is not their gender as identified at birth, but where they could be with boys could be with girls and girls with boys. So... They said that that's never going to happen, but the policy says, well, there's a possibility for that to happen. That's why we're doing it. So they either wanted me to lie and join them with their lie and say, hey, we're not we're not shooting straight with the policy that we wrote. We're lying in the policy, and that's to be in line with the feds, the fear of man and wanting to capitulate, and or they're lying that they were telling me they weren't, and they actually are going to. But one way or another, I'm not going to partner with them in either of those. And uh, that kept being told me. And I kept refusing and they kept saying things like, well, you know, you've never, you've never given us any other options for training than this. Like, and that wasn't their thing they wanted really, because once they said that I did, um, I pointed out some sermons my pastor did on sexual gender, uh, stuff, three of them that were really good. I so you can listen to those. Those will give you a good idea of truth. Um, I consider them good training. Plus I, when I said, here's a non-religious one, you can look up the, uh, documentary by matt walsh what is a woman and see that there's no religion in there that's tell you about gender you know issues and all that and of course they rejected that so i went out and i detailed in in depth rewrote the policy the wicked policy they wanted me to sign off on as well as wrote a new training the training i wrote was a professional no religious jargon in anything just was a literal awareness training, literally doing what they should have done in their training, their training, instead of having like several videos talking about what it's good to be, you know, a gay police officer and part of this community and woe is me and the things I've suffered and all this, but now I'm doing what's right. And I know what I'm doing is good and blah, blah, blah to 
now me actually nothing about stats nothing about a jail nothing that actually helped corrections people and i wrote a uh, training 24 page powerpoint production with direct statistics from the national prison bureaus um actual things that actually make people aware of what it actually means to law enforcement and specifically corrections and they even the sheriff's office even admitted that my training was over and above was was uh, exceeded what they expected me to understand for training. So they finally dropped my training requirement for the LGBTQ community training and received my training. However, they still said you still have to sign off on this JP620, which was then the implementation of the wicked practices that were being promoted in the LGBT community training. And I stood my ground and said, no, I'm not going to do that. I refuse. And in that, to do otherwise, I again, I took the whole procedure and rewrote it professionally, uh, in detail, no religious jargon, anything, and made a policy that was exactly in line with everything the uh, jail commander, the undersheriff, and the sheriff was telling me. It said exactly what they told me we weren't going to do. But the problem with my policy is it was honest. I didn't say there's a way for someone to end up in another cell. I said uh, someone who is a biological uh, female or biological male will never be housed with a biological female or, or someone of the opposite sex or gender um, because they said that's never going to happen. So I just put it in words, but they didn't want it in words because they wanted mm. to be able to be dishonest. They wanted to be able to have their cake and eat it too. So they refused my policy and said they're not going to let a single deputy dictate the policy of the sheriff's office. So... They kept trying to get me to capitulate, additionally, you know, sanction me, put me on a week suspension. Um, and at that point is when I knew I was done for because I, in the sheriff's office, just to give a quick idea of what happens when you're going through a firing process or a di any discipline process where you're going to get a detrimental effect. I was recommended by the jail commander to receive a one week suspension without pay. And I'm allowed to have what they call a louder mail hearing with the sheriff to contest that sanction. So I went to the sheriff, talked with him, talked much like I'm talking to you with all these same things, the lunacy of it, made clear that he knew, just like I knew, that he has no obligation. That's the funny thing. He doesn't even have an obligation to do these things. The uh, state has no power over sheriff running their jail in Oregon. It's a blessing we have. The feds don't have any say in what we can do with our jail. This Priya is a nationals is um statute it's a national guideline but there's no teeth to it there's no enforcement power um the absolute worst that could happen is that a state meaning the state of oregon not our county if and it's all ifs it's nothing's a guarantee but it's if certain counties in their state were not in line and somehow um that became known to the feds and the feds decided to act they could withhold a mere five percent of federal grant funds that are given to the state for their prisons. So in other words, it wouldn't matter to the sheriff anyway, because none of those funds come to us. They only go to the prisons. So it has no effect on, on the jail. Um, it has no, and I don't know why he'd with a conservative position who he says he's a, told me he's a conservative God fearing Christian man. Um, I don't know why he'd even want to be. I asked him, I don't know why you want to be connected to the wicked government in uh, Washington, D.C., the leftist government there, or the leftist one out here in Salem. Uh, I don't know. He was kind of, yeah, I know. I mean, he never argued with me about any of this. He was, yeah, this Priya has been a pain in my neck for 20 years, as bad as I know. And I don't know why we're doing this, then, Sheriff. And mm -hmm. uh, what? 
that's where we were. And what really sealed for me knowing that I was probably on my way out was that in that hearing after it seemed to go really well for me and it took several days for his judgment to come in. When his judgment came down, I was, I was charged with four violations, uh, two of which he found unsustained because it was basically the lieutenant didn't listen to what I said and didn't read it correctly or miss, misspoke. So those were wiped out. But the last two were, number one, insubordination. And to be clear, he could have kept just insubordination and still disciplined me with that. But amazingly, he chose to take the leftist talking point and ding me for it because the second, which I was surprised the lieutenant charged me with too, the second uh, talking point, the second charge against me was that I refused to recognize anyone's self-professed gender identity. And I said, of course not. I, mean, I don't recognize anybody saying that they are what God says they're not. So, and he found me guilty of that. So that really told me, well, mom, this is going downhill. There's, unless God moves a miraculous work of repentance here, um, he's definitely not on my side because he's actually siding with the leftist agenda point. And I got dinged mm. for that. So, hey, so Mason, let me ask you a question, brother. Uh, out of yeah. all, you, you know, you, you've shared how you have close relationships you know, both with the inmates and with your fellow deputies and stuff like that. Were there any other conservative Christian deputies that saw what you saw and took a stand or in some way supported you or were you pretty much isolated? I would say that there is a handful in the shift that I was on with the people I was working with, at least two or three people that named the name of Christ. Uh, at least a handful that I know of through the jail who I had some interaction with. Every one of them did the training. They said they were disgusted with it. They didn't like it, but they felt like it's what they had to do. Um, and I understood that only because I understand how this world, sadly, and how weak the church in America has been. I blame that, you know, a lot of the two kingdom separation theology that's been, I was part of it for years, heard it for years. It's just, you know, pretty much as long as they don't stop you from preaching the gospel, you know, in your daily life, as they don't shut your church down, then you pretty much obey the government, whatever they say is lockstep, obey Romans 13 until they tell you to, you know, defy Christ. And uh, that's kind of the idea. And so I think everybody just thinks they can get away with saying that um, and be okay with God. And I blame the pulpits primarily for that uh, because it's propagated a weak and wicked uh, orthopraxy within the populace. So uh, I, I would say, I think if the majority of the Christians were in my job, were at my church, <laughs> I think they'd be joining with me. My pastor even went so far as to say from the pulpit and he, it was unnecessary, but he said, if Mason would have signed on this procedure, he would have been under church discipline for doing mm. this and we called them to repentance wow. under praise god so i mean it was it was one of these things where it's a clear thing whereas everybody else is like yeah you got to do it do your job my hope is that some of these folks now that i've been fired and it's been made public and it's gotten around that when and it still hasn't happened yet as of yesterday i know of this jp620 while it's in the books in there it has not been sent out for the rest of the deputies to sign 
Wow. My hope is that when they send it out to sign, that those Christians will be emboldened to say, I'm not signing it either. And we'll take a stand against the wickedness of it for it. Um, I don't know if they will, but I pray they do. And I will say that every single one of them that I talked to, every even the non-Christian, just the guys and gals I worked with, every one of them thought it was ridiculous that I was being going through what I was for my stance. Even though they wow. signed, they'll sign off on it all. And they, they thought it was ridiculous that I was being put in the position I was. So. It's, it's interesting, Mason, because we... we um... In our Bible study today, we were in the book of Judges, uh, Gideon, um, and talking about how, you know, fear begets fear and courage begets courage. And how Amen. God, throughout redemptive history, you know, just one man, you know, that commits a righteous act and how God changes the course of nations and civilizations. I mean, it's throughout biblical history. You know, you, you know, the famous David and Goliath, you know, scenario, right? Where the, the, the army of Israel is shaking in their boots. They're paralyzed by fear. You know, one little boy, you know, takes on the giant, you know, takes him down, you know, and what happens? Like courage just infuses the souls of God's people and then they join the battle, you know, and they pursue and overtake the enemy. And uh, you, yeah. brother, are taking a, a much needed courageous stand. You're, you're acting as a check and balance against this wickedness. And it's so needful today, brother. And I just want to publicly commend you and bless you, brother. Uh, we need this kind of example uh, today, so let me just ask you this, Mason. Uh, you, 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 you have been officially fired. Is that is that right? Yeah, April fourth, I was officially fired. Okay, so do you have any recourse right now, uh, as far um, as challenging uh, this wickedness, and especially how it led to your firing? I have the courts as recourse, like anybody would. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a bummer situation in a, in my, but it's it's a, it's a bittersweet situation due to all the COVID nonsense that we all know that uh, last wave of tyranny and monstrosity that was in our country. You know, we've seen the the lies of that being peeled back, and so now there's been a glut of those cases being filed federally, and so you have to get these hearings to get your what's called a right to sue letter going. And the it is so glutted in the procedure right now and all the in the offices out there that there are no current dates for me to have an interview to have my process moved forward for the lawsuit. But we're working with I'm working with my lawyer to figure out how to get that going. But right now there's so many people suing um, their jobs over being unrightly fired due to that. There's, there's no dates for me to get interviewed for this new unright fire. And this would be uh, obviously first amendment violation and what the feds call title seven uh, religious protection. So my lawyer, uh, Ray Hackey, a good friend of mine, he is a lawyer with the Pacific justice Institute. He's handling this case. He's handling a few different cases I'm involved with. I mean, he's always, he's packed too. But um, so I'm trying to get that ball rolling 
That ball is rolling, but slowly. I don't expect it to be quick, but I am uh, pursuing that. Um, I also don't expect to win, um, but regardless if I do, it's these moments on shows like this and what other media outlets have been able to get out there is my hope is that by it being out there, that more and more above everything else that the church would start to wake up, that much like the COVID issues brought it out, more and more people will realize that we are not in a friendly territory. We're not on neutral ground with secularists. We're in enemy territory. We're being fought against. We're being hated. We're being discriminated against. And they'd like to shut us down, shut us up, and kill us if they could. That's we're hearing that violence. We're hearing the trans violence um, arguments being made now. It's no coincidence, as God doesn't deal in coincidence, that we just had a, a trans murder the at the schools, those poor kids at that little Christian school, um, just within a, within a week of my firing, um, it's these type of things are in the spotlight. These things are happening all over the place. So I, I am definitely pursuing it. And my hope is that if, if nothing else, Christians will wake up and go, wow, maybe we need to restudy what the Bible talks about in submission to rulers and how we submit, what Romans 13 is really talking about. What does this mean to submit? Where are we supposed to stand as a lesser magistrate when we have that position? And to give my props to uh, Pastor Matt, who I know is a good friend of yours too, his book, Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, has been such a blessing to me and my recognition that I was a very limited, low-budget uh that magistrate, the sheriff was clear and true that I obviously could not change all policy. I had no authority to make policy for the whole county, but I did have the obligation as a Christian in the role of a magistrate to stand for what is right, demand it, whether I could get it or not, and say, I'm not going to go with it. And I urge you to repent and please implement it because it's what right. It's right, not because I have the power to make it happen. And all I could do was hold my ground until they fired me, refused to quit. I mean, I could have gone away quietly and just quit. So I'm not going to do this and quit. But I be believed my role as a magistrate was to stand for what's right in the protection of the inmates, protection of even my fellow deputies who wouldn't stand with me at the time, and uh, for the county as a whole that they would turn from this madness and do what's right and let my small voice be one that stood firm and call for repentance. And still am praying and told the sheriff today in my um, name clearing hearing, which is an interesting thing, that I'm still praying for his repentance. Still would have loved to loud him as a hero rather than uh, one who's in sin in this. But uh, such as it is, here I am today, and that's what ended it. You know, I ended up being fired. <laughs> So, brother, um, where does that leave you and your family and uh, and also your, your future in the sense that, you know, I don't know what the pension policy is for Oregon, uh, but where does that leave you as far as, you know, your future livelihood? Well, right now, I mean, by the grace of God, we're, we've got a few bucks. The Lord's blessed us with being able to be uh, frugal with our money over the years. Um, about I was able to speed up and about three years ago through some juggling with some no interest credit cards and thing was able to uh, pay off our the last of our house about three years early. So we own our home. I own my vehicles. Um, I don't have any outstanding debt um, that's mine. And 
when I got in a car, my guy, I had a little car that I paid three thousand dollars for like last year. It took forever to register it, and then it got hit by a deer and got totaled. And because all the prices had gone up, I ended up getting a, almost a nine thousand dollar payout on that car. Was able to pick up another vehicle for about thirteen hundred bucks. It's a nice, was a good deal too. And so I was able to put about five grand just in the bank, nice savings account. And uh, then tax returns came about this time. Um, and so I was able to st stockpile a few grand. And uh, we're, I mean, a few grand doesn't last much anymore these days, but it's way more than I had. And I don't have any income coming in right now. I don't have medical insurance, which if anything, that probably uh, has my wife nervous more than anything else. But we're totally confident that God is in control. I am. We are in talks with the, the elders, my fellow elders on the elder board at Wellspring Bible Fellowship, where I go, like I said, and serve there. Um, there is a possibility of full-time ministry um, with the church. That will be um, figured out soon. But for right now, um, I am just trusting the Lord, and He has been providing so far that we have money in the bank to cover bills for a little while. And even to the detriment of uh, much of this society and their failure to want to work and COVID explore, exploding and showing how many people are lazy and will just take a check. Uh, sadly, that means there's a lot of jobs out there. So if I need to go down the road and flip burgers, I can go flip burgers. I'll, I'll keep food on the table. We'll keep the, we'll keep the lights on. There's plenty. There's always room. To, there's always place to go to work. So uh, I'll be able to do that if that's where I have to go. So just wow. see where the Lord takes us. But right now we're, we're blessed. Well, praise God, brother. So we're getting ready to uh, conclude this interview, brother. But um, before we sign off, Mason, um, is there any way um, folks can contact you? Do you have a, a website or some kind of link um, that we can include uh, in this podcast? Because I really want people, A, you know, to pray for you and your precious yes. family and and, yeah. and support you in that manner that that's really important but uh even do you have uh, any kind of link maybe uh to give to your family uh to help you during this time you, you have anything like that set up mason well honestly um i nobody said anything up money wise um, and I'm not really worried about that right now. The Lord, like I said, the Lord's covered us. Um, if I ever feel the need to reach out, I'll reach out and let folks know. As far as contacting me, I used to have a web page and something got jacked around with that a few months or so ago. I don't know what happened. It's kind of on a hiatus, as it were. Um, but the easiest way to find me is Facebook. I'm on Messenger. I'm on Facebook. I don't think there's too many Mason Goodnights out there. You just spell my name right, Mason, and then Goodnight with the K in there, G-O-O-D-K-N-I-G-H-T. You probably find me pretty easy. Um, and sending me a private message is real easy. I try to keep track of that, especially if someone tells me, you know, Hurdy on Rusty's show, you know, I'm praying for you, whatever. I, I'm pretty quick to keep an eye on track of those. Um, that'd be the, probably the easiest way. Um, Facebook and through Messenger. I am also on Instagram, but I'm not very, very often. I'm primarily on Facebook. And that's not, it's, that's probably the easiest way to always get in touch with me through there if they'd like to email. They don't do Facebook. If someone wants to email, my email address is uh, the number four and then 
G Knights. So it's four G K N I G H T S at gmail.com. That's four G Knights at gmail.com. Um, that's my personal email. So that's another easy way to get a hold of me. And if anybody just feels like, man, I would love to um, give financially to you to uh, further this, I will tell you, we are so so closely yoked together in the furtherance of the gospel with um, my church that I would just say, if you want to make a donation to Wellspring Bible Fellowship um, for evangelism, uh, for the work of the gospel going forth, um, you can feel free to just send it to further that there, and it will be used for the glory of God and for the ministry that I take part in regularly in evangelism. Like I said, they fully support me. Um, I've been They've had my back forever. We work together in this, and there may be a point when uh, I'm able to be full-time with them. Lord willing, that'll be a case. Um, but I totally know that any dollar sent to Wellspring Bible Fellowship would be to the glory of God and will be used to further his kingdom and uh, be a blessing to my family. And I just knowing that our church is being supported because our church supports us, uh, you know, and they they support their people and they support this drive to see abortion abolished, to see this type of wickedness exposed, to see the gospel go forth into all the world to disciple the nation. So I love my church. If anybody wants to give anything there for the purpose of blessing that type of work and ministry, you can donate to them by going to wbf.church. So that's Wellspring Bible Fellowship, and that's wbf.church. And there's a donation link, gift giving page. You can find it through the webpage. Feel free to give anything there um, with a note or not. It'll, it'll, It'll glorify God. I know that. Well, what, what I'll do, uh, Mason, uh, I'm going to mm-hmm. put your email address as a link, and I'll put uh, your Facebook page as a link, and then we'll put a link to the church. So that would be some way people can respond um, and, uh, you know, prayerfully stand with you and support you yeah. uh, as a dear brother in the Lord. So, bro, I just want to again want to thank you so much for the example that you are setting, you know, uh, so needful in these days. And, and I do pray the Lord uses this, like you said, brother, to awaken, you know, Mm. the church of Jesus Christ to recognize the season that we are in and what is needful, you know, as we negotiate through this, you know, government, tyranny, the moral anarchy in our culture, and the great need for the gospel of the kingdom to go forth in power to touch and change the souls of men and set the captives free. So, brother, thank you for standing for our Lord. Thank you for providing this much-needed example. Thank you for the courage that you're exemplifying. And I do pray, brother, that it inspires others. Uh, to to follow this example, because like I said, so needful in these days. So, brother, thank you so much for taking this time, and the Lord bless you. And uh, brothers and sisters, uh, this is Rusty Thomas, Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. And as usual, 
We want you to keep pressing on to that high calling prize in Jesus' name. God bless you, saints. Till next time.